So welcome everybody to this uh, panel, this event on Afrofuturism and the law. And if it's okay, I'd like to begin with uh, three quotes. Uh, the first is from the black gay science fiction writer, Samuel Delaney. And Samuel Delaney wrote, science fiction isn't just thinking about the world out there, it's also thinking about how that world might be a particularly important exercise for those who are oppressed because if they're going to change the world we live in, they and all of us have to be able to think about a world that works differently. The uh, next two quotes are from another one of my favorite science fiction writers, the amazing Octavia Butler. What good is science fiction to black people? What good is science fiction's thinking about the present, the future, and the past? What good is its tendency to warn or to consider alternative ways of thinking and doing? So I think for Octavia Butler, the, the answer was pretty obvious. Science fiction and thinking about alternative ways of thinking and doing uh, has a lot to offer Black people, and indeed everyone. In fact, for me, it helps to uh, consider her questions from that quote against the backdrop of another quote um, from her. Uh, Octavia Butler also said, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. Um, so I began with these quotes because for me, they capture so much of what Afrofuturism about, imagining you know, a better world in which people of African descent not only exist, but thrive. Or as Mark Derry, the cultural critic who coined the term Afrofuturism put it, Afrofuturism describes speculative, speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture. So with that said, uh, welcome again to this event, Afrofuturism and the Law, um, organized by the Center of Ethics at the University of Toronto and co-sponsored by the Center of Race, Law and Justice at Fordham Law School, my home institution. Um, of course, by now, some of you may be wondering uh, where the law comes in, in this event called Afrofuturism and the Law. Um, for me, this has its own origin story. Um, I'm a law professor in the United States where I write mostly about criminal law and criminal procedure. And as you can imagine, um, it's a topic where race is often the elephant in the room. In fact, uh, some would even say race is the room. It's also an area where there are increasing concerns about policing technologies and diminished privacy. So for me, it seemed like the perfect area to think about what policing might look like in an Afrofuturist world. Um, and the result of my thinking about this was an article I published a few years ago uh, in the NYU Law Review on Afrofuturism and policing. But I have to say, even as I was writing that article, I was curious about how other scholars who focus on other areas of the law might engage with Afrofuturism in their scholarship. Um, you know, so just a handful of questions, like, like what does law look like in an Afrofuturist world? Um, if there are other sons, new sons, better sons, better futures, 
can we figure out what role the law should play in getting us there? especially if we're talking about better futures where everyone thrives, including people of African descent. And, you know, in addition to the question of what role law should play in getting us there, I guess the question should ask, have to be asked as well, like does, role, does law have a role to play at all? Like maybe law does not have a role. So these are questions I find interesting. And as you can imagine, um, I was delighted when uh, Marcus Duber of University of Toronto contacted me on behalf of the journal Critical Analysis of the Law um, about putting together a symposium issue. And now this conversation featuring scholars from a range of areas uh, and subjects, both within the legal academy and outside the legal academy to engage with the topic of Afrofuturism and the law. Um, so I will say a few more words uh, about the format just so we're all on the same page. So as you know, we have four panelists in, in groups of two. Each panelist will have 15 minutes to present their paper, and then we'll open it up for what I hope will be something um, more conversational, an open conversation. And for that, <clears throat> the audience should feel free to put questions, comments, suggestions in the chat. And I'll try to get to as many of those as possible during the discussion periods. So uh, we're gonna begin with Ngozi Okadegbe, a law professor at Cardozo Law School. Uh, then we'll turn to Alex Zamelin, political science professor at University of Detroit, where he's also the director of their African-American studies program. Um, and then after the, both of them have gone for 15 minutes each, we'll open it up for discussion. And then the second hour of this program will begin with Rashida Phillips, uh, the Director of Housing at PolicyLink, a National Research Institute, and then Etienne Toussaint, a law professor at University of South Carolina. And again, each will get 15 minutes, then an open discussion. So I'm going to invite everybody who's listening or watching to check out their bios. Um, you can find them in the Critical Analysis of the Law website or just Google their names. Um, that being said, I can't resist just saying a few more words about each of them. Uh, so Ngozi Okadegbe has been writing just incredible articles, legal scholarship on race, policing, and tech. Um, Alex Zomelin um, is the author of six books, and I encourage everyone to check out his book, Black Utopia, The History of an Idea from Black Nationalism to Afrofuturism. Uh, Rashida Phillips, in addition to working as the director at PolicyLink um, and being involved in housing law for over a decade, is also the founder of the Afrofuturist Affair, the Black Quantum Future Collective, and a founding member of the Metropolarity Queer Sci-Fi Collective. And lastly, Etienne Toussaint, uh, is one of my favorite writers in the Legal Academy, writes about business law, the political economy, and critical theory. Um, and with that, um, let's get started. So I am going to turn things over to, um, I guess, who did I say we're starting with? Um, uh, Ngozi. 
Good afternoon. Uh, thank you so much, um, Bennett, for that kind introduction and for giving me the opportunity to be part of this issue and this conversation. I also want to thank um, Marcus and Simon for their hard work in putting this issue together and the organizers. Um, I research and write on the growth of predictive technologies and criminal legal structures specifically explore the impact that the use of these technologies has on ongoing racial justice efforts, as well as on the livelihoods of members from racially marginalized communities. And it's such a pleasure to present my essay of Afrofuturism of Algorithms. Um, algorithmic systems are proliferating in the criminal legal system, facilitating the same racial inequities that their utilization was designed to reduce. And their continued use poses is a significant barrier to racial justice efforts on the ground that seek to change or dismantle and reconstitute a criminal legal system that is implicated in mass policing, mass incarceration, and mass surveillance of racially marginalized communities. In this work, I seek to explore what an Afrofuturist approach to algorithms might offer in terms of addressing the racial harms that these technologies facilitate. And though I'm focused on algorithms, particularly risk assessment algorithms in this talk and in this paper, the discussion applies to other predictive technologies as well. My talk will be divided into three parts. First, I will briefly discuss the increased utilization of algorithms in criminal administration. Second, I'll lay out the incompatibility between today's, today's uh, algorithms and racial justice. And then I will sketch out a proposal for an Afrofuturist approach to algorithms, which would insist on radically incorporating the epistemologies and ways of being of Black and other marginalized people into the paradigm governing algorithms. So as background, uh, criminal legal decisions are increasingly being uh, informed by a prediction made by an algorithm. We see their use in policing, bail, sentencing, and parole in the United States. And this algorithmic turn is also taking hold in Canada, as evidenced by uh, Citizen uh, Lab's work. Um, in the United States, the rise in the use of these algorithmic systems is connected to the fact that jurisdictions across the country are turning to them as a popular response to the problem of racialized mass incarceration. These algorithms tend to be risk assessment algorithms. They uh, use a statistical method and information about an individual to gauge the probability that that individual will engage in misconduct. And by way of example, uh, pretrial algorithms uh, are designed to be used uh, by bail judges, and these algorithms are designed to predict the likelihood that a defendant will fail to appear or will be arrested for a crime if released pending trial. And the predictions or risk scores produced by these algorithms are used by bail judges to determine that defendant's eligibility for pretrial release, as well as determining pretrial release conditions. And on the PowerPoint slide, I've included the methodology of public safety assessment, which is a popularly used um, pretrial algorithm. Um, proponents of the algorithmic turn contend that these algorithmic systems can debias and rationalize criminal legal outcomes and interventions. And going back to the example of 
pretrial algorithms that I started with, uh, the claim is that the increased use of pretrial algorithms will enable bail judges to identify and release defendants who are at a low statistical risk of committing pretrial misconduct. However, the algorithmic turn has ignited an opposition movement against their use. And one dimension of this oppositional movement has concerned racial justice. And at this point in my talk, I want to turn to how algorithmic systems as currently employed are incompatible with current racial justice efforts. I'm going to focus on two problems, uh, one, the democratic exclusion problem, the other, the racially inequitable predictions problem. And while these two problems are not the only reasons for which today's algorithms are incompatible with racial justice, discussing them will provide us a useful uh, starting point. So one reason that algorithmic systems are incompatible with racial justice is because the paradigm governing the adoption, construction, implementation, and oversight of algorithmic systems is democratically exclusionary to members from racially marginalized communities. Uh, and there are three dimensions to this exclusion. First, these algorithmic systems are procured and adopted without the input or oversight of these communities. Second, these algorithms are often constructed by private organizations with no internal mechanism for facilitating community input or scrutiny. And finally, even where there is a, a space for the public to give their views on the use of these algorithmic systems, these uh, participatory systems that are set up tend to be unresponsive to those hailing from communities that have been devastated by the carceral uh, state. Uh, and importantly, this exclusion reinforces the democratic exclusion that these communities already experience in criminal law governance with two consequences. First, this reinforcement impedes efforts by these communities to challenge, change, or dismantle how the criminal legal system physically, economically, and psychologically harms their community members. Second, this reinforcement disables efforts by these communities to dismantle how the criminal legal system hampers their exercise of democratic rights with resulting effects on their ability to fully participate in society. Another problem from a racial justice perspective is that these algorithmic systems produce racially inequitable predictions. And though the increased use of algorithmic systems was intended to reduce the overrepresentation of racially marginalized people in criminal legal structures, the increased use of these systems has not had that effect. In fact, as critics of algorithms feared, these algorithms tend to operate to reproduce and entrench existing inequities. So take, uh, for example, pretrial algorithms. Because uh, pretrial algorithms tend to overestimate the riskiness of racially marginalized defendants while underestimating the riskiness of defendants that have been racialized as white, the algorithm disproportionately mislabels racially marginalized defendants as at a high risk for pretrial misconduct. At the same time, this problem has resulted in the algorithm disproportionately mislabeling what white defendants as at a low risk for committing pretrial misconduct. Uh, this problem has been termed algorithmic discrimination. The PowerPoint slide includes uh, photos from a ProPublica report on uh, the racial disparity in risk classification and risk scores given uh, to racially marginalized defendants uh, in comparison with white defendants. And there's an entire field devoted to addressing this problem. But as it stands, this 
problem results in the production of racially equitable predictions that serve to justify the concentration of carceral surveillance and containment in racially marginalized communities under the guise of scientific objectivity. And one reason that algorithmic systems produce inequitable predictions is because they're built and trained on racially inequitable data. But another reason that these algorithms produce racially uh, inequitable predictions is that they are exclusively built on and trained with data from criminal legal institutions. Uh, and these institutions, as I theorize in prior work, are carceral knowledge sources. This feature has meant that algorithmic construction is ideologically and epistemically tethered to knowledge sources that maintain racial subordination, which itself contributes to the incompatibility between today's algorithms and racial justice. Thinking about the incompatibility between the paradigm currently governing algorithms and racial justice gives us an opportunity to think about ways forward. As Afrofuturism is a radical rejection of the present world of Black suffering, it provides us one route forward. And at this point, I want to turn to what an Afrofuturist approach to algorithms could offer by engaging with uh, some of the broad themes of Afrofuturism, as uh, Professor uh, Capers sets out in his uh, article that he mentioned in the introduction, Afrofuturism, Critical Race Theory, and Policing in the Year 2044. So first, applying an Afrofuturist approach would mean shifting power. Afrofuturism is premised on the idea, as Philip Butler notes, that Black people are alive, thrive, and are in power in the future. Engaging with this idea goes against the current paradigm governing algorithmic systems, a paradigm which is exclusionary and unresponsive to Black and other marginalized people. Applying an Afrofuturist approach would mean that Black and other marginalized people would no longer be the mere objects of algorithms, but instead would be in power as developers, implementers, administrators of algorithms they would be the ones to decide if algorithms are used in the first place. And assuming that algorithms are used, they would be the one to decide what purposes they should be used for. Second, applying an Afrofuturist approach would mean shifting toward Black epistemologies and shifting away from the epistemologies that maintain vulnerability, disenfranchisement, and suffering in the current moment. One reason that today's algorithms facilitate racial hierarchy is that they were not built with the epistemologies of those living with marginalized identities. Applying Afrofuturism to the paradigm governing algorithms would change that. It would mean shifting toward those who have been epistemically disadvantaged by the present reality as a means for ensuring future algorithms produce different and equitable outcomes. Third, Afrofuturism concerns itself with reclaiming. It's about recovering Black epistemologies, Black ways of being, Black subjectivities that would, persist, that would persist, if not for slavery, colonization, and their afterlives. 
Turning to Afrofuturism means enabling marginalized communities to reclaim algorithms. And what would it mean to reclaim algorithms? To give some examples, one could imagine algorithms directed toward identifying judges who are at risk of being biased towards racially, racially marginalized defendants, a suggestion Professor Vince Sutherland has theorized. One could imagine algorithms directed toward identifying geographic locations that are at risk for an ecological catastrophe in order to direct resources to that location to prevent the suffering that gives rise to interpersonal violence. And these examples are to name a few potential uses. Beyond algorithmic uses, algorithms built on an Afrofuturist ethos could impact the criminal legal system. It could shift the practices of system actors. It could provide a path towards dismantling and reconstituting the criminal legal system into one that supports the well-being and safety of all, even those who are currently targeted and harmed by the system. And even if system actors give no effect to the outcomes produced by these algorithms, these outcomes would constitute a statement that the current operation of the criminal legal system is not in line with the values and safety of racially marginalized people, a fact that those who benefit from the system need constant reminding of. To conclude, the paradigm governing algorithms is incompatible with racial justice. If we are serious about addressing this incompatibility, we need to look beyond the epistemologies and ideologies that sustain racial hierarchy in our present reality and in our imaginary. Engaging with Afrofuturism offers us a way forward and presents new opportunities. Perhaps algorithms could become a vehicle for racial justice, but unlocking that potential requires us to bestow Black and other marginalized people their rightful place in regard to the algorithms of today and of the future. Thank you. Thanks, Ngozi. I cannot wait to... Uh... <laughs> have this whole discussion, especially about reclaiming algorithms. But before we get there, uh, let's turn it over to Alex. Hey, Alex. Hi, hi. Thank you, Bennett. Thank you, Ngozi, for such a wonderful presentation, such a uh, illuminating take on the way that Afrofuturism can be reconstructed productively to think through uh, algorithms. Um, so I want to thank everyone for uh, coming out today. I want to thank Bennett um, for organizing this. Marcus for um, getting everyone together. And to say that I'm really grateful to be part of this collection with a wonderful group of legal scholars, theorists, and writers. So I feel incredibly privileged to be part of this conversation. I should also say that I'm not trained in the law. And when Bennett uh, came and asked me to, to think about something relating to Afrofuturism and the law, I had to dig deep and kind of think about the ways in which I might consider that question. Because I'm trained as a political theorist and intellectual historian. And my book, Black Utopia, was really an attempt to sort of trace the ways in which Black political thinkers have imagined notions of utopia and dystopia in America, and to argue that that reframing of utopia in Black offers productive lessons for thinking about all sorts of questions regarding the future and questions pertaining to power, justice, dignity, and freedom. So 
when I sat down to think about this question of Afrofuturism and the law, I began to think through what can Afrofuturism teach us in terms of revising basic conceptions about how we think about the law. So my understanding of the basic opposition and juxtaposition between Afrofuturism and the law on the one hand is that the law is the site of the state, the site of power, the site of juries, judges, sovereignty. Afrofuturism in many ways is the site of utopian possibility, of transformation, of play, of dynamic energy that doesn't constrain to basic expectations about what is real, commonsensical, and so on. And so as I began to consider Afrofuturism's critique of the law, I centered on several aspects. The first of which, and this is connected to Ngozi's argument, is that Afrofuturism puts Black autonomy, Black subjectivity at the center of our conception of politics and the law, which is to say, even the first Afrofuturist text, uh, or I would identify this as one of the first, this is uh, the text Blake by Martin Delaney. Delaney imagines what a liberatory movement led by a formerly enslaved Black man, Henry Blake, might lead to. And what Delaney tries to do in this 1858-1859 text, at a moment when there's tremendous pessimism around the prospects for Black freedom, in the wake of Dred Scott, in the wake of the 1850 compromise, all of this is something that Martin Delaney says needs to be reconceptualized, not from a white frame, not from a white perspective, but from black citizens who are engaged in the daily struggle against white supremacy. So when you read a text like Blake and you think about what insights might it have for the law, what's striking is that Delaney refuses to adopt expectations around what is normal, normative, according to those white citizens who are in power, according to the state, according to the law of enslavement. Instead, Delaney wants to give us a sense of what solidarity might look like, what radical images of freedom might be when Black citizens are at the forefront of the page, the written word, and also are thinking about imagination as such. And this is a theme that continues throughout much of Afrofuturist thinking, whether W.B. Du Bois and his important novel, Dark Princess, which imagines a kind of Pan-African solidarity of citizens, or going into uh, the bookend of the 20th century, which is Octavia Butler's parable series, which puts a Black feminist protagonist at the center of a new world building project. To me, this is one of the great contributions of Afrofuturist thought, essentially reframing our expectations about what kinds of knowledge, what kinds of positions, words, arguments, um, sources of leadership and struggle are to be privileged. The second 
contribution of Afrofuturism, I think, is to disrupt narratives of progress and time that the legal system takes for granted, which is to say almost all Afrofuturist texts, and this is what distinguishes them from Euromodern texts, such as a text by Thomas More, Utopia, or various books by Edward Bellamy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, is that Afrofuturist texts take seriously the notion of tragedy. And what's striking about all of the books that I consider in um, Black Utopia is that whether it's Martin Delaney, later Samuel Delaney in Triton, Octavia Butler, George Schuyler, for all these theorists, there is something deeply problematic about a certain kind of innocence, which assumes that the right formulation of institutions will lead to freedom, will lead to an easy reconciliation, progress. For all of these Afrofuturist texts, there is value in embracing tragedy. There's value in thinking through complexity, thinking through time, not as a straight arrow into a benevolent future, but as something that requires constant negotiation, work. There's a great moment in W.B. Du Bois's The Comet, which is a short story written in 1919 as part of his Darkwater collection. And Du Bois imagines this series of moments in which the two lone survivors after a comet has destroyed New York are a black man and a white woman, Jim and Julia. And rather than assuming that somehow all of the histories, all of the hierarchies are gone, escape, and that a new world can be built out of the ashes of disaster, Du Bois really asks us to imagine how difficult it is to assume responsibility in the face of catastrophe, how difficult it is to speak, deliberate, reason, judge these moments when crisis and uncertainty looms large. And so the narrative, which takes place over a couple thousand words, 10 to 15 pages, gives us that back and forth. There's the tragedy, which is the communication is imperfect between Jim and Julia. The communication does not resolve into a kind of easy solidarity. But still, there are brief moments where they recognize one another, where they move together through the streets of New York to try to find survivors, where they take each other's contradictions seriously. But at the same time, the work concludes with Jim being accused by Julia's husband, who turns out is still alive, Fred, of engaging in sexual violence toward her. And what happens in that moment is that Du Bois suggests that all these moments of solidarity, responsibility, interracial hope in the aftermath of disaster require struggle and work and will not simply be achieved because the specters of race, white supremacy are incredibly difficult to abolish. And dreaming them away through fantasies of post-racialism, through fantasies of due process, here we're kind of shifting into the register of the law, are unsustainable. The third 
argument broadly construed, I think, that Afrofuturism offers us is an alternative ethic. And here I'm thinking specifically about the work of Octavia Butler. Although the parable series is read as something of a prescient interpretation of what American culture would look like, the rise of the far right, the rise of neoliberalism, gentrification, privatization, et cetera, when Butler wrote these books in the 90s. As a matter of fact, there's another strain in the book, and that is an alternative philosophy, which is called Earthseed, an alternative philosophy which centers on this notion of adaptability. And what's striking is that Butler is suggesting that an Afro-futurist attitude towards world building, towards claim making, towards thinking through the law requires not, as she puts it, destructive fanaticism. Here we can imagine legal positivism, but instead something much more pliable, a certain level of adaptability, being attuned to the structures, moments that emerge, dissipate, and potentially reemerge. And this is a theme that you see in the earliest Afrofuturist text, whether it's Delaney, whether it's a book like uh, Francis Harper's Eola Leroy, which imagines a kind of post-Reconstruction Black community of doctors, um, educators, professors, mobilizing to discuss crucial issues that pertain to the beginnings of Jim Crow America in the 1890s. All of this, in a sense, is a salient theme in Afrofuturism, which is rather than imagining that all the answers are simply there in advance, whether it's through precedent, case law, that the Afrofuturist recognizes that the notion of power in the legal system and in American society requires constant democratic struggle and engagement. And as a matter of fact, when the parable books conclude, it's not clear, just like in the comet, it's not clear whether this is a moment of resolution, hope, or something more problematic, because the book series ends with something of a colonization of another planet, uh, an escape, if you will, which goes back to some Black nationalist themes from the 19th century. But what is crucial is that Butler is positioning that space of living within contradiction, taking seriously the notion of adaptability as the only potential epistemological and intellectual space that can get us to any kind of li livable future. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for having me and, and, and inviting me to be a part of this um, edition. Um, so my paper was called Race Against Time, Afrofuturism and Our Liberated Housing Futures. I'm going to go through some of the parts of the paper um, today, but of course you can read it in full online. And yeah, so when we think about time, right, we tend to think about time as the clock on the wall, we tend to think about it as the date on the calendar, we tend to consider it in some ways objective, 
Um, but really time is not objective, right? And it enters into the legal system in really every aspect of it. Um, when we think about the temporal constructs of the courts, when we think about deadlines, filing deadlines, the analysis of legal precedent, appointments, schedules, you know, every aspect of how we practice and how we approach the law is involved with time. Um, it, it's, it's just replete and in, in, entrenched in, in the law. And just as the law and race are intertwined um, in some of the ways that my co-panelists talked about, right, time and race are intertwined. Um, and so what you see on the screen is a map um, of uh, the construct of time as it intersects with um, black people's experience, particularly in America, um, and looking at tracing this term color people's time, right, and how it shows up. And so when we look just even at the system of slavery, right, and we look back, it's considered a system that automatically deals with time. It's, it divides up people's time, right? And so, for example, three quarters of the Negro's time was to go to the owner, right? This is documented in, in articles and books, um, just in terms of how, how um, Black people's time is divided up um, when they're, during enslavement. And so it plays a role in, in everything. It plays a role. And also when we're tracing the history of the construct of time itself, right, we, we find that it's intertwined, again, with enslavement, with imperialism, with um, being able to even do the work of going out to find, you know, different continents. Um, for example, um, you, you, what's on the screen is a chronometer, right? And this chronometer was built and it was used by um, Captain Cook to, to get to Australia for the first time, right? So the ways in which time mediates um, slavery, mediates imperialism, um, and then, you know, sort of coming through when we, when we go through time and move through history, um, the co-association of Black people, of of people of color as objects of, of time, of slavery, of labor. Um, and so, you know, I have some examples up here um, of black people being associated with clocks, um, being associated with objects, other things, right? But just again, the ways in which time is intertwined with race um, and which, in which the ways in which time is racialized. And so also you see on the, on the right-hand side, um, a schedule, right? Typically when we're talking about things like segregation of black people, segregation of space, um, we're spatializing it. We're talking about Jim Crow as a spatialized concept where, where people were kept out of, out of particular spaces. But it's also a very temporalized um, oppression as well, right? Because there were particular times where black people were kept out of this certain spaces, right? So time is definitely intertwined in this way. Um, you know, there's regular times that white people are able to go into school or into, into a theater and then there's the Negro times, right? So, so there's also just this temporalized nature of oppression. And then you have, right, very specifically, um, black people's images being built into clocks, the, the image of the mammy, right? Um, these mammy clocks, um, these, these buck clocks, these, these sort of clocks that build in time, right? And, and again, where black people are time, are seen as time. Um, so very racialized, very um, temporalized nature of, of time, uh, racialized nature of time. Um, again, another phenomenon we can talk about is sundown towns, right? Um, the sundown towns across America that still exist to this day, right? They're not called that and it's not legislated or, or you know, laid out in the same ways that it was um, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, but these towns were prevalent where Black people had to be out by sundown, where there were literally signs up that said, you know, Negroes have to be out by sundown. If you're not out, you know, 
harm comes to you, violence, you can be lynched, you can be murdered. Um, and there's a, if, if folks watch Lovecraft Country, there's a scene in the first um, episode that that displays this very vividly, the, the impacts of sundown town and, and them having to move out of, the, get out of the town before sundown. And the, the sundown towns extended into entire counties, entire places where Black people were considered illegal, you know, in terms of being, being, being present. And so this carries over, right? This carries over into the law in very specific ways. Again, although we don't have it sort of media, um, legislated um, in the same ways, right? It still is very present. It still is very built in when we think about who is impacted um, by inequities that are present within our legal system. And so poor and racialized people are um, in quotes, confined in a narrow temporal band, unable to anticipate and plan for their own future, powerless to affect their political face. And so um, in my, previous work as a housing attorney where I represented people who were facing eviction, facing displacement, facing loss of housing, um, the time and temporality was very much present, right, and how I had to think about, um, uh, about the impacts of some of these, these issues. So, for example, um, going to court, representing people in eviction court, um, there was a, on average, 55% of eviction cases ending in default judgments um, in Philadelphia. And so this is 55% of the cases where tenants are showing up what's considered late, right, to court. Um, and this is often due to conflicting demands on their time. Um, you know, you the court is downtown. You, if you are a person who's about to be evicted, you probably don't live downtown. You probably live on the outskirts of the city or in North Philly or in the places around the city where people face frequent evictions, right? So it takes you time to get to court. Um, they start calling the list 8.30 on a dot. If you're not there by 8.30, right, and your name gets called, you could be evicted three weeks later. So just thinking about the temporal constructs, um, particularly also if you're a part of different courts, like particularly for Black people who are criminalized and, and, and caught up in different legal systems, whether it's the child welfare system, housing court, um, criminal justice system, right? The different conflicts of time that are, are set up in, within those different systems um, ultimately conflicts for people. And so they end up with these defaults, um, you know, where they're kicked out of their homes less than three weeks later. Um, and then, you know, loss of subsidized housing in general. So in, in the paper, I talk a lot about notice requirements, right? And, and notice requirements themselves being this sort of temporalized thing, right? This, this time-based thing of when someone's going to get noticed that their building is being sold, that they're going to be displaced, um, that they're going to be evicted, right? And so that is legislated and mediated by the law. Um, in terms of how much notice you get, whether you get no notice, whether you're due no notice, right? Or if you get six months notice to move from a neighborhood that you've been living in for decades, right? So the ways in which time shows up in these processes. And then eviction records themselves. And I'll talk a little bit later about some solutions and some ways of addressing this with sort of an Afrofuturist lens that thinks about time more expansively, but eviction records. So eviction records in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia, there is no law that currently seals those records from view. And so those records, right, it could be something that um, happened seven years ago, 10 years ago, those records continue to show up and continue to be accessible to landlords who then use you know, these algorithms and use different um, technologies to screen tenants and then reject them, even though there's no nuance added to that, that eviction record. It could have ended in an agreement, it could have ended in the tenant winning, right? But just the record itself follows that person well into the future and locks them out from opportunities in the future um, to have decent and safe housing. And so we find, right, that um, just the zooming in a little bit on, on this issue around housing and, and around how, again, 
we tend to spatialize this issue, right? But there is time built into this automatically. When we're thinking about things like redlining, for example, we often as a society talk about redlining as a historic artifact, as something that happened back in the 30s, right? But it's merely transformed and it looks, it just merely looks different. It has continued, right? And so we find in Philadelphia that the same areas that were redlined back in the 1920s to, through, through 1932, essentially, um, are the same exact areas in the city where Black people are seeing the highest rates of eviction. And this is despite income, right? So it's not just a poverty issue. It's not just people falling behind on their rent, but there is a racialized nature to people facing housing loss. And again, losing housing, right? It locks you out from your futures. It locks you out um, from being able to access a healthy, decent habitability, habitable living situation for decades. I mean, I've represented people who got eviction records in 1968, right? And, and to this day, um, you know, as they're trying to access senior housing, as they're trying to access disabled, dis um, low-income housing or accessible housing, um, they are locked out from based on these records, based on criminal records, right? So again, the ways in which um, time shows up in these things that, that are often considered spatialized. And then again, the particular effect um, uh, in terms of race um, and, and the impact that, that um, on, on black communities in particular. So in Philadelphia, um, it is true that the, this quote by Matt Desmond, black and, Hispanic, uh, black and Hispanic men are locked out, black and Hispanic, I mean, are locked up and black and Hispanic women are locked out. And so in Philadelphia, this mirrors the rest of the country, 74% of the people who are evicted are black women um, and their families, their children, right? And, and again, we, the impacts of, of those evictions are far reaching. Um, it, it caused in, into decades, it caused health conditions, you know, it, it really um, threatens and limits access to education as people are being evicted and have to move from neighborhood to neighborhood, et cetera, um, right? So I won't get into all of the impacts of eviction, but um, that, that the, again, these things have generational impacts um, on Black communities in particular who see the highest rates of housing instability and evictions in our country. Um, and so we have to start really utilizing and thinking about new tools and new frames and new lenses when we're thinking about how we address these issues, right? Um, the, the Fair Housing Act of 1968, God love it. It, it, did, it did great work and it continues to do great work, right? But it is very limited. It's very outmoded um, in terms of thinking about how we access housing futures, um, particularly for those who have been marginalized and locked out of their housing futures for many, many decades since the beginning of, right, the, the invasion of, of this country um, and taking, you know, it from indigenous folks, right? So um, how we access and think about the future has to be different than how we've talked about it here to, you know, all up until this time. And I think Afrofuturism really offers a lot of different tools and ways and lenses to think about this. And so I bring these tools into my work as a, as a, both being an Afrofuturist practitioner and artist, and as well as um, being a housing advocate. And so when I'm thinking about time, right, and, and for me, what Afrofuturism offers is a different way of thinking about time, is a different way of thinking about the dimension, the temporal dimension of the future and the past, um, right, because they are intertwined. And so it is not just that you know, because for Black people and, and Michelle M. Wright, Professor Michelle M. Wright talks about this a lot, right? 
Um, we are always constantly running to catch up on the timeline of progress. And if we consider the timeline of progress to be constructed in the white, white imagination, right, we're always going to be running to catch up. We will never reach um, that, that pinnacle of the future, right, because we were never meant to access the future. Um, Black people, you know, during enslavement, we weren't given clocks. We weren't able to have watches, right, because it was a tool to access liberation. Um, we weren't, um, you know, we were just, again, locked out of this idea of the future, locked out of this vision of the future. We weren't even considered human, let alone, you know, um, existing in time and, and able to access the future. And that, again, that, that idea carries forward. And so when I'm thinking about time and thinking about what Afrofuturism offers to transform our ideas of time, I'm thinking about time as abundant. Um, I'm thinking about time not as something that's scarce. Um, what the linear white timeline does to us, right, is it makes us co-associate time with money, time with labor. Um, and so when we get out of that trap and we can see time as expansive and as abundant, which Afrofuturism offers us plenty of tools to do that, um, it, it offers us different opportunities for um, shifting um, these, these inequalities and inequities um, through this lens. And so it also offers, right, being able to think about an inclusive and expansive future, um, again, it, it gives, gave me a, a lens and a, a, a construct through which to think about temporal conflicts as they exist for my clients, for the community that I work with and serve, right? So again, thinking about temporal conflicts, thinking about political time, thinking about labor time, mobility time, um, familial, personal, communal time, right? And the ways in which those things exist in tension and the ways in which those things can be aligned in some ways and sometimes not, right? So again, it just offers different tools, different strategies when you are thinking very specifically about the temporal construct and the temporal nature of some of the systemic inequities that, that um, folk, Black folks are facing. And then treating the past, present, and future as open possibilities. And so that's where I was talking about earlier, these eviction records. And so one of the ways in which I was able to bring this approach into this particular issue, working with communities that are impacted by eviction records, is we said, hey, look, how can we deal with this issue, right? When we're thinking about eviction records and how they lock the past, again, how it's a piece of paper that doesn't, that, that is locked in time and that is used um, for the, into the far future to deny you access to housing opportunities. So where are the places where we can intervene in this system um, and how can we shift the system to reopen up the past, right? Be able to open up access to those records, be able to change the past, be able to question what's in that record and say, look, that's actually not accurate or there's new, more nuance here, or actually my circumstances have changed. And so we don't have to have this locked in time linear relationship to our housing opportunities and our housing choices where the past determines the present and the present determines the future. No, we can actually open up that record. We can question it, we can get it changed. And then that will fundamentally change the relationship of the present where I am locked out of housing opportunities to the future where those opportunities open up. And so we were able to construct a law called the Renters Access Act that was able to do that and was able to, um, it, it's a law that, um, it's an anti-discrimination law that says, first of all, landlords cannot just use your eviction record as the sole basis for which they're going to um, determine whether or not you're a good tenant, um, right? We know that that has a particular impact on black women um, who are mo more, most likely to have the eviction record. So they have to do a holistic view. They have to give the tenant an opportunity to bring back additional information um, telling them you know, whether or not that eviction record is incorrect. 
they get a copy of the tenant screening report that the landlord has used that previously was very mysterious and that no one could access, right? So I won't go into all the details of the law. I do, I, I do have um, a paragraph written in, the, um, in my paper about it. Um, and so you can go there, but I'll just kind of close by some other, naming some other guiding considerations when we're thinking about how we access housing futures. One, we really need to um, start to apply these liberatory frameworks. And I was glad to hear folks bring in abolition to the conversation when we're relating it to Afrofuturism because it does offer us an opportunity to actualize, right? Again, when we're thinking about time, we're thinking about visions of the future or the futures. I like to pluralize the futures, right? Because I, it's not just one future. Um, and, you know, Black folks are polychronic, right? And we experience different levels of time, different ways of time. So how do we pull in Black traditions of space-time, right, that harken back to um, our Afro-diasporan ancestors and, and their ways of experiencing space and time and their rituals and traditions? And how do we bring that into the present? How do we bring that and apply that to our frameworks in terms of thinking about housing and, and use that to dismantle the current systems and create new systems, not just reconfigured or tweaked systems, right? Because you tweak one end, it's gonna just redirect the flow of the liquid to another end, right? It's gonna find the, the, the spaces where it can flow through. And so when we're thinking about these systems, we need to build new systems, right? And I struggle with even thinking about building systems. I, I like the term models. I like building models because systems, right? It, it just harkens back to these old ways um, that are crystallized. And then invoking black indigenous and brown spatial and temporal imaginaries and envisioning and creating new model spaces and futures. And that's not just, to me, you know, that's not just Wakanda. That's not just putting some shiny <laughs> silver technology in a place that is otherwise disinvested in. We're talking like full scale, bringing in how our, our folks, our ancestors have thought about space and time, have thought about housing, have thought about all these things that existed, right? Like modern man didn't <laughs> invent all these things, right? So how do we bring those things in very seriously in, in, in direct ways that cut through um, that really allows us to construct these worlds that are of our imaginations and not just neoliberalist visions that just have black people in it doing the same things <laughs> that white people are doing. Um, and then guiding considerations, again, reimagining ways that we collaborate with impacted people and communities to build sustainable power. And even I struggle with this notion of power, right? Because power has a lot of different definitions. And I'm not talking about power that just looks like black people in, in power and authority, right? We're really talking about power that is collective responsibility self-determination, that kind of power, right? So we really also have to unpack this notion of power when we say it, because it's becoming this buzzword of like, yeah, shift the power, but like, what kind of power are we talking about? And does it actually do anything that that is different than what, what currently exists in our systems? And then co-developing sort of new solutions together. Um, so yeah, I don't, it's been past my 15 minutes. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Community Futures Lab, which is a uh, Afrofuturist project um, community space that we built in North Philly as it was undergoing um, displacement. But I talk about it plenty in the paper and then I have some videos and stuff online that folks can check out if you're interested in learning more. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Rashida. And I'm definitely gonna ask you about the Community Futures Lab where we get into the discussion because I wanna hear more. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to Etienne Toussaint. Uh, well, first and foremost, thank you so much, Bennett, for coordinating this volume and this uh, event today. And I'm so thankful for the honor to participate. I'm thankful for the presentations from, from Alex, from Rashida, from Ngozi, 
Um, and, I, and I really appreciate Rashida and her reflection on time uh, because my essay in, in the process of revisiting a very mundane moment in my childhood <clears throat> is in many ways a challenge to the notion that the linear movement of time forward is synonymous with progress. Um, and so I think my essay, which is entitled For Every Rat Killed, reflects a sense of time as cyclical, um, as ritualistic in a sense. And progress, I would argue, emerges from what we learn during the return, uh, the circling back to pivotal moments and the reconsideration of our shared history through a critical lens. So the act, and I think this is in many ways what Afrofuturism as a project is seeking to accomplish, uh, the recovery or the reclamation of forgotten histories is what enables us to shape a new world. So in a sense, I'm arguing that there is an aspect of uh, the Afrofuture as praxis that actually exists in the past. Um, so before I begin, I want to offer three questions uh, for your consideration that serve as a foundational lattice structure for the narratives that I will share with you today. Uh, the first is what are the visible and invisible cultures of capitalism that exist in the United States? The second, what does it mean to be free in modern capitalist economies? And the third, what is lost in the process of striving in modern capitalist economies? Um, so I, I want to uh, wrestle with these three questions in this piece. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the, the intersection of capitalism and culture, capitalism and freedom, and capitalism and loss. Uh, but also in this essay, I want to convey a sense that law as an abstraction of social reality uh, is really merely a language for telling stories. And so therefore, in my view, Afrofuturism and the law is really a project of telling new stories using a familiar language, or perhaps even changing that language altogether. So let me begin with a story from my childhood about my grandmother. My grandmother was the one to flush it down the toilet. We would all cower behind her my sister, my brother, and me, each peeking out from under the flexed arms of our five-foot-one champion. She would stand before the green bowl with her shoulders arched back, calloused hands clasping the animal by the tail, pink floral nightgown inches away from its soaked hide. I wondered where she had garnered the courage. Her face would twist into a harrowing yet resolute glare that left me curious. Had she learned the procedure in the villages, villages of the Caribbean, perhaps Rosso Dominica, where her sister still lived, or upon the musty docks of New York City, where she first inhaled the sharp scent of American opportunity as a young immigrant. Either way, such musings about the delicate process of endings demand a much longer explanation of beginnings, and ours was not unusual. So I begin the essay in this way. Uh, with this story about killing rodents in our household in New York City 
and my grandmother as a as a as a as a woman who who played a central role in our household as a central figure in in one way to sort of demonstrate the mundanity of exterminating pests that's sort of a common feature of living in urban environments but also to try to express um a sense of something unique or at least to articulate the notion that this project for me, and I think what Afrofuturism is trying to achieve, is to trying to surface some new insights by revisiting um, sort of lost stories or, or sort of forgotten histories, if you will. Um, and, and this idea of dealing with pests is not something that is unique to me um, or those who lived you know, with me in the South Bronx during the 80s and 90s. You know, something that's actually quite common in urban communities and, and actually rural communities as well across the country. Um, you know, landlords in almost every city in the United States, they certainly have to maintain their premises under a warranty of habitability. You know, this notion that it is in livable condition for tenants, but state laws do not clarify how many pests are needed uh, you know, to not infringe upon the idea of livability. So it's really left up to the residents themselves to, to, to ward off these pests, so to speak. Um, and this is something that we can see tracked throughout history, this relationship between people and pests and, and, and the role that, that government sort of imposes upon individuals to resolve the threat of pests that exist in their community. And we can look back at the bubonic plague and in the early 1900s called Black Death in San Francisco. And the city invested $2 million toward the extermination of rodents, which you know, it was discovered were at least one of the disease's vectors. We also saw during that time, uh, the extension of the Chinese Exclusion Act because you know, it was determined that Chinese immigrants were the ones that were bringing in these rodents. So racism motivated how the government uh, sort of framed the, 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 the view of pests and their intrusion upon um, you know, everyday life. We also see in the 1960s, you know, efforts taken by newspapers and, and, and the government trying to pass certain programs to deal with this threat of pests in low-income communities. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson tried to pass a rat extermination and control bill in 1967 and it failed. And he declared, we're spending federal funds to protect our livestock from rodents and predatory animals. The least we can do is to give our children the same protections that we give to livestock. So this issue of pest is not something that's new is something that's almost a feature of living in urban communities that are dense, that are, that are, that are crowded, and also a feature of sort of the, the history of public health in our country and, and, and the long ways that we've come. Uh, but one of the things that I do in this essay is integrate um, some literature to, to, to try to draw some connections between the experience of living with pests and the broader context of living within a capitalist society. Um, and I think this poem by Tara Betts, for those who need a true story, you know, offers a very interesting 
snapshot into the connection between pest control and capitalism. And I'll read just one part of the poem. Raymond describes the wave of rats like a tidal crash covering the bowl, leaping over each, other, each, other, each other's bodies. <clears throat> then the droppings, the stutter kicks, a chorus of rat screams ramble through Raymond's ears, keening furry bodies tense paws against churning guts as they hit cracked linoleum until an hour passed. Raymond, want, Raymond wanted to stop counting, but mama needed to save a dozen dollars wherever she could if they wanted to finally leave the rats behind. So this poem is actually describing a scene of a mother and her son living in low-income housing, uh, trying to collect the bodies of dead rats on their kitchen floor because they're, they'll be able to save $12 on their rent for every rat killed. And to me, I think it really demonstrates the bleakness of capitalist culture for low-income workers, sort of the relationship between pests and how often um, the confrontation of pests is connected to, to living in a low-income environment and trying to overcome that environment. But also to me, reflects a sense of the culture of capitalism uh, for many communities in the United States this sense that your hands have to get dirty, your eyes have to turn away from what's brutal um, in order to overcome, you know, the process of striving to overcome one's marginality requires embracing this sense of violence. Um, and, and so I think to me, this really provided me with a, a different insight in terms of thinking about how certain communities experience capitalism as a culture. Uh, Joshua Bennett and being property once myself describes this experience that some communities endure as actually an act of insurgency, a sort of labor toward escaping the environment that they find themselves within. And so in some sense, what this suggested to me was that there's an aspect of capitalist culture in which individuals embrace the violence in an effort to escape it. Um, and we don't really get a true sense of this, this experience until we begin to uncover some of these histories. Uh, but the technology of exterminating pests, right, and that violence is not something that, that, that everyone is, is in some ways in agreement on. There's there sort of an underlying tension, a moral tension between the notion of using violence to exterminate pests and the practice of extermination as a method for striving and as a method for progress within a capitalist society. And so I talk about different technologies that have been developed to, to exterminate pests, some more violent than the other, some that will kill the rodent instantly, um, and some that will kill the rodent, perhaps you might describe it as more compassionately. And so upon reflection, you know, it made me consider, well, maybe compassion was the reason why my grandmother chose to use the sticky trap to kill our rodent, as opposed to using 
some of the other more violent methods like poison or um, you know, a, a wooden trap that would kill the rat instantaneously, which is to say, you know, in the midst of embracing violence as a mechanism for striving to survive and to maybe even thrive in our capitalist culture, do different communities sort of grab hold to different technologies to, uh, to, to sort of reckon with that culture in their own way, to resolve some of the sort of existential angst, if you will, of what it means to become an American, which is very, which, you know, one might argue is a violent experience, but also to make sense of that um, on an ethical dimension, on an, on an existential level. And so my grandmother chose the sticky trap. And it was interesting because it made me think about the book that I read in high school, Native Son, and that very first scene where Bigger Thomas, also in the kitchen, is trying to kill the rat. And he grabs the frying pan and begins to smash the rat repeatedly, right, until it's dead on the floor. And then, and then waves it in the air, taunting his sister. And those two images of my grandmother choosing the sticky trap and Bigger Thomas smashing the rat with the frying pan uh, stood out to me as sort of two different ways of embracing and, and coming to terms with violence as a way to make sense of one's sort of subjective experience within a capitalist economy, um, yet also having the unction to overcome, right? And in, in the story of Native Son, we see this desire to overcome, to escape. And at the end of the, the book, Bigger, in fact, is he, he becomes the metaphoric rat in a sense, trying to escape his world, trying to, trying to make sense of what it has turned him into. And I think for me, there's a sense in which um, my grandmother was doing the same. Um, ultimately, I think what I try to explore toward the end of the project the end of this essay, um, and I'm sensitive to time. What I try to explore at the end of this essay is, is ask, and I think what Afrofuturism as, as, a, as a form of practice, praxis is, is sort of allowing us to ask these broader questions, ask with this juxtaposition between my grandmother's methodology and Bigger Thomas's methodology says about capitalism as a culture, says about what is lost as we try to reckon with the inherent violence in capitalism as humans. Um, and then what that means for how capitalism as a mode of being evolves in the future as we begin to uncover these different cultural experiences, these, these, these specific sort of both um, uh, geographically and also temporally specific experiences of capitalism that are also racialized, you know, what those say about what our future might become. What I'll note that's interesting about my grandmother's methodology of extermination is that prior to us marching to the bathroom and flushing the rat down the toilet, she would pour boiling water upon the sticky trap. And it never quite made sense to me why she did that. Um, as I went through the research, I actually discovered that, you know, 
Some scholars argue that a sticky trap is actually a very violent form of death because the rat is forced to remain on the trap for a long period of time. And so it extends the, time, the, the, the sort of waiting period before they're killed. And so to me, perhaps the boiling water was a kind of compassion as well in terms of speeding up that process. Um, you know, it, all, it certainly subdued the kind of whimpering that you might hear from a, from a rodent in the middle of the night when it got stuck on the trap. Um, but it also, again, to me, spoke to the different methodologies that people embrace to try to reckon with and make sense of the different technologies, so to speak, that they have at their disposal um, to resolve the inequities that they're forced to endure, right? Um, the notion that I must kill the animals around me to make my home livable for my children. Um, is this something, and, and, but also teaching my children about what it means to do so in a measure of grace and I grow up in a Christian household. So what does it mean to teach my children about the, the normality of violence and death when you live in certain communities, yet also inspire them to strive to become better than that which has become normalized? You know, I also consider the way extermination of pests um, on a metaphorical level is something that when you look back in history has become normalized more broadly in our culture. And you could think about technologies of extermination, if you will, um, on a more broader sense. And I began to draw parallels between the different ways that we try to exterminate rodents to the different ways that we try to exterminate people who are unwanted, who become insurgents into our space, into our living space. And so we desire to remove them. You know, you can look back at Japanese American incarceration during World War II as a kind of sticky trap where we wanted to temporarily limit the mobility of certain people that were infringing upon our sense of well being, our safety. You could think about the neglect of Native American populations on under-resourced reservations as a kind of box trap, you know, a different way of exterminating so-called pests without killing them, merely confining them to, to a space out of view. Um, and then certainly you could think about gentrification as another kind of slow death, um, but one that's very different from the very violent death that occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, the death that was wrought upon many low-income communities, many of them predominantly black, that you might describe as similar to the death that Bigger, Bigger Thomas imposed upon the rat with the cast iron skillet. So extermination is a very normal experience in our everyday lives much like the extermination of pests becomes normalized in capitalist society in a way um, that, we, that we don't often think about it. It becomes a kind of socialized death as Orlando Patterson described the act of slavery. Um, ultimately, I, I think what, what's, and I'll end here, what's, um, what's nice about Afrofuturism is, you know, by revisiting the past, we can give those 
voices in the past an opportunity to live in the present. And so I also thought about what, you know, my grandmother might do with the technologies we have available today that weren't available at her time, during her time. So I thought about social media, I thought about, um, you know, mechanisms for activism, mechanisms for organizing, um, to sort of speak out in a different way about the social conditions that she endured and the social conditions that she strived to help us as, as her grandchildren learn how to resolve. And so I think in some ways, to me, that sort of and begins to answer the question of where do we go from here, you know, is, is it, it starts in the past for me in terms of giving individuals in the past a voice in the present um, and allowing their, their lost experiences to sort of speak to the tools that we have today that, that could in fact um, offer a different future from, 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 from where they left us. Uh, and so I'll stop there. I'm excited to have the larger conversation.